0: Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hi, Vincent. How are you doing? Good, and you? Yeah. yeah, good, mate. Um, a bit of an ad hoc show this week. Paul is over in sunny London. <laughs> Loki him. Yeah, uh, with his Add in 365 crew. So um, we won't be doing an intro, we'll just jump straight in today. Mm-hmm. We haven't had you on the show for a while. It was, last time we had you, on was April 7th, 2020. Oh, yeah. So it was like right as the, the pandemic started. Pandemic started. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like between two years and two centuries, right? <laughs> <Ago>. Yeah. <laughs> I almost want to go back to see if we talked about, well, you know, this won't last long <laughs> and we'll be back. In- <laughs> I, don't think, I don't remember talking about it uh, back then, but yeah. Yeah. The, just the delusion that we're delusional state we're all in back then. Mm-hmm. And in, in that time, you've gone from being a program manager over in the identity division Mm -hmm. to now a developer in engineering in our org. Exactly. So um,
1: before I joined Microsoft, the uh, I was a developer, as you as you know from way way back. Yeah. And for me, being a PM was a bit of an experience. This is something I wanted to uh, try as a career option and explore. And I, I kind of blame Daryl and yourself for kind of luring me into the, the <laughs> PM role back then. And it was a really interesting experience. I got to learn how you know you build a product and envision a product and refine it to the point where it's exactly what what your customers need, and also drive the team to get there and help uh, everybody uh, to get there. But it's not what I like to do the most um, uh, in retrospective. So this is why about a year and a half ago now, I guess, yeah, it's it's been a while now, I decided to revert back to a dev role because what I like is to be able to sit down, focus solve hard problems and 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 cheap solutions and this is not what you do as a pm as a pm you do more of you know well you know a bit better than i do actually you know communication and coordination and all those kind of things and it's a it it wasn't working for me um just as a matter of personal taste
0: yeah no i must say like it was definitely a loss because you really ramped up quick into that pm role like the The work that you did around change tracking really made a difference. Thank you. But I think the biggest single thing you can hang your hat on is the throttling pages that you (laughs) did. Going around and getting all the workloads to document exactly what the throttling was for each workload on the graph. Like the amount of support calls that saved us and conversations with ISVs, especially in my team, has been, you know, amazing. But, um, You've been doing a lot, I didn't realize it's been 18 months, but I guess it has been. You've been doing a lot since then on um, on the dev side. What would you, like you're from, from your experience as a developer outside of Microsoft and now your experience inside, what would you say is the biggest change? Because there's probably a lot of people listening here that maybe have aspirations to work at Microsoft. And I just wonder as a dev, like I haven't been a dev in a long time, full time. Like how does that differentiate being at such a large company versus where you were before?
1: So first you have to factor in the difference between uh, working on quote-unquote products or as a consultant. My last role led to lead before I joined uh, Microsoft was as a consultant. So as a consultant, you know, you are every day thrown in into a situation. You need to think on the spot and solve for the situation and, and you know, build a solution really quickly. And sometimes you take shortcuts that, uh, you know, could be more or less uh, frowned upon, but that's, uh, that, that's fine. And when you're working on a product, um, of course, it's a longer effort. It, takes more thinking and we have the help of our lovely PMs to understand really what the customer needs and what kind of um, solution we need to build for the customer. And that also translates into more thinking for uh, how are we are going to build the solution. So there's probably more conversations happening um, rather than just jumping into the code and having to figure out a solution right here, right now. Yeah, It's just how different it is. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different way of working. That's the main difference I would say.
0: And for you, before, I think your team was all local. Like now you're in this remote world, which I'm guessing most people are now with Mm -hmm. the pandemic. But how has that changed how you do things as a dev as well? Like, is there more tooling that you're using than you would have done before being in a more distributed team? Because obviously, a lot of the teams over in Nairobi and Kenya and uh, so that's so there are two uh, challenges
1: at play, the first one is we have a distributed team, like a third of the team is in Redmond, I'm in Montreal, so three hours ahead of them, and uh, another two-thirds of the team is in Nairobi, so of course we have a large time span which comes with benefits and also with drawbacks in terms of uh, communication friction and so on and so forth, right? Because of that, not only we need to be really on the spot in terms of tooling, like having CI/CD that runs fast, that's easy to understand, that provides um, effective feedback so you know if you are doing something wrong, what to fix and what to improve. But also, uh, we also have been ramping up on our asynchronous communication methods. Um, the team was really meetings heavy uh, before I joined and I've been advocating saying, hey, that doesn't need to be a meeting. It can be a, a video that's recorded or it could be a post on Teams or it could be a thread on Teams. So let's try to reduce the meetings because this way we have, uh, it makes it easier for all of us to work when it works for us on our time zone. And then you know leave stuff for others to pick up when they're online. And it doesn't lock us to certain... Times that works for the meeting and so on and so forth. The other aspect is the team has grown uh, significantly since I, since I joined. I think when I joined, I was number seven or eight or something like that on the team, uh, and I believe now we're about thirty-five on the team. So you can imagine that comes with challenges, right? Growing comes with pains, and it's perfectly normal. And we're the, the processes we put in place maybe six months ago are already out of date because you know the team has grown so much that we need to ad- account for that, right? So yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I must admit the not devving full time for a while, but there's, being in the zone, it's funny, I forget what film it was that showed that. Maybe it was the Facebook film oh, where yeah. it was like developing and it's like, I'm in my zone, don't like leave them alone to code. Mm-hmm. For me, that's very true. Like I can't jump in and jump out of writing code. Mm-hmm. Whereas with my PM role, I'm doing, well, you remember, it's like 12 things a <laughs> yeah, day, exactly. context switching between things. And so I do think it's more important with developers to um, have that ability to have long time frames like that to yeah, yeah. just sit there and do their own thing without a distraction. Well, look, I'm excited to talk about the project you've been working on. This wasn't the first project you picked up, though. Coyota wasn't the first, right? What was the first thing you did when you joined? The team. That's right. So the first thing, Devere, uh, my boss, when I joined the team, told me, hey, Java is on
1: fire. Go fix Java first. <laughs> and our Java SDK had, because the team was too small, we had too many languages for too few people to to care. And Java had been one of the casualties, right? Of course, we are going to put more emphasis on .NET and JavaScript. And, um, and Java did not have enough uh, hands on deck to to take care of it. So I went there and uh, worked with um, the, the rest of the team to make sure that all the urgent issues were addressed and fixed, and all the bug fixes were f- flowing. And then I eventually did a, some kind of revamp of a Java SDK to fix all the breaking change bug fixes, like because we, we, we didn't want to you know break people all the time, of course. And that lasted until March 2021, I want to say. Yeah. And uh, we've seen, and, and because we gave a uh, lot the Java SDK, we've seen a tremendous adoption on the Java SDK. That's actually, awesome. Java developers are happy to have an SDK that actually works. And now that uh, they have this SDK, they, they use it more and more. So that's, that's pretty good actually.
0: Is the Java community one of those communities where they do rely a lot on SDKs? Because I know like some languages tend to just prefer calling REST directly, but is Java more of a natural SDK orientated one? i would say
1: it's a preference thing you do have developers like like java the java ecosystem has been around what for three years now i believe so we have a library for pretty much everything and, and anything so of course they're used to instead of reinventing the wheel, seeing first um it, is there something out there that does that for for me right the authentication uh, these HTTP calls serialization deserialization all those things that can take time and be tedious uh, if it's not your main focus but there are also people that say no this is not what I want or this is too big and they just want to make REST calls and it's perfectly fine as well but again uh, this way we have an offering like the, the ones that don't want to use an SDK can still not use an SDK if they don't want to, even though they are losing on a lot of benefits, of course. But now we have a decent offering for the ones that want to use an SDK and just focus on their logic or their application rather than, you know, focus on, hey, do I need to serialize the JSON like that or like this?
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it brings up a good point, to the general advantages of using our SDKs rather than doing it yourself. and. We've worked with lots of partners where they don't use it, and they fall into the same common traps around kind of like handling throttling or serialization, even typos in code where they've typed names wrong. That you, with the SDK, you're going to skip over. We've all been there. We look at the code. And go, There's nothing wrong with this code, and you raise the support ticket, and the support person goes, "You spelt." Team's wrong. <laughs> and <you're> like, oh. <laughs> no.
1: And, and Julie, usually the worst with those mistakes is it takes you forever to see the typo, right? You're right. like banging your head against the screen yeah. and saying, where is the issue? And uh, where if you are using an SDK, the compiler will catch that for you and will yell at you right away, right? So yeah, it makes yeah. it easier.
0: I mean, there are lots of others, but those are the common ones that we see, especially for more junior developers to take advantage of. So since March this year then, um, you've been working... With Daryl, the Daryl, yeah, the one on this thing called Coyota, yeah. So, what is that? I mean, that's a completely non-intuitive code word, and I'll just kick Daryl under the table with that comment because D- we've been having this <laughs> notion of like using abstract code words to things versus calling them what they are. But there we go. Sure, uh, I want comment on the name decision but what the name <laughs> means
1: it's from Swahili and it means uh, nest or origin and um, this is uh, the, the the name that has been chosen for for this project before I talk about the project I have to tell you how we make SDKs you understand that uh, Microsoft graph is a um, very large API. Uh, with thousands of endpoints, and it's not humanly possible to handcraft uh, SDKs and all the different methods for all of those different endpoints for all those different languages, right? It will require thousands of developers. Because of that, we are heavily relying on code generation. We have generators that do write the code for us, for the most part. And we've had two code generators uh, so far. The first one, a very old technology called Typewriter. Uh, relies on OData libraries, plus T4 templates, plus a bit of magic. And this is how we generate today the Java SDK, the .NET SDK, the iOS SDK, and I believe also the TypeScript types, as well as PHP, and it was Hard to maintain, hard to ramp up new people on, and it had a lot of uh, our shortcomings as well. The other ones we've been using for PowerShell is called Autorest, which has a PowerShell generation module and where it has a better community support. It's not just for our team. It was having difficulties with the vastness of our APIs. Our APIs are so big that um, Autorest was kind of having difficulties with, you know, how oh, there is an API so big, I need to generate so many commandlets. And it was uh, challenging. This is one of the reasons why, not the only one, but one of the reasons why uh, we have divided uh, the partial SDK in something like 70 or 80 uh, modules, different modules, to ease up the installation and the updates and so on and so forth for, for everybody. With all that uh, said, we started looking at um, alternatives, like is there another either OData-based or Open API based code generator that could Fulfill our needs and generate the kind of SDKs that we want to provide to our customers. And after looking for a while, we, we could not find um, any suitable replacement for, for those. So, this is why we started Kyota. Um, the idea of Kyota is its a fluent style API SDK generator for open API described. Uh, APIs. So if you have a REST API that has um, an open API description for it, Kyoto will be able to digest that and generate an SDK with a fluent style API and with models and with serialization, deserialization, and a bunch of other things um, uh, for you. Right now we have support for .NET, Java, TypeScript, Go of course, Uh, and we're working on CLI, uh, Python, and PHP, and also Ruby is kind of uh, on the ice right now, but it's
0: also uh, here as well. So just to unpack some of that, because it was a lot. Yeah, I know. A fluent styled SDK. Yep. So what that means
1: is um, there are a lot of different endpoints on Microsoft Graph. um, And you can access things on Microsoft Graph by just adding path segments on the API. For example, if you want the messages for the current users, um, you do slash me, slash messages, right? if you want a specific message you append an id to the url path if you want the attachment for that you append um, slash attachment right well we do kind of rely on the same aspect on the sdks we generate where you can do client.me.messages and then if you're in dotnet brackets the message id then dot .attachment. This is what we mean by Fluent-style right. API, where you dot your way into the exact specific method that you want to have um, and if what you want to call, which will end up calling um, the right endpoints at the end of the day.
0: And so this generator, I, just, I distinctly remember Daryl building like an initial prototype of that ridiculously fast and showing me how he'd like generated the whole .NET one in no time. Like, is that reality or is that just Daryl showing off?
1: Uh, yeah, no, it's reality. um the, the, the proof of concept was pretty fast, and I was pretty amazed when Daryl came to me a year ago and said, hey, I have this prototype. Uh, do you mind taking it and see if you can move it further? And I was like, yeah, this is going to be a lot of work, and I, actually it ended up being much less work than, than we sus- suspected, and it works well. But besides that, we're able to generate the full V1 SDK for the languages we support in under two minutes on a Surface Book 2 that is not the greatest and latest. And you know it's not a war machine that has tons of gigabytes of RAMs and tons of CPUs. So so it's pretty fast. One of the, one of the tenets of uh, Kyoda is uh, we want it to be easy to add new languages. We want to, it to be easy to uh, generate and fast. That's important. And so it's also easy to debug and have quick feedback loops as you're contributing to Kyoda or using Kyoda. Uh, we also want to make sure that it relies on standards like the Open API standard, like on broadly adopted standards like the Open API standard, like um, the URL template standard, and a few others. And we want to make sure that the Fluent API and the models we generate do not take any assumption on terms of which JSON library should I use or which HTTP client should I use and so on. We provide default implementations, of course, so you can actually run your code and and call uh, Microsoft Graph or any other API for that matter. But if you're not happy with our implementations, you could always re-implement our interfaces with a library you care about or even the serialization format you care about or the HTTP library and so on and so forth, and come up with those instead because that was also one of the uh, feedback we had on existing SDKs.
0: Yeah, that's smart. And so to understand, like the prototype was built as like the generator itself. And he built that with the .NET generator on top of it as an implementation. What what was like the main things that you learned from the prototype that kind of made it into the the what's released today as Kyoto? Was there any huge things that we didn't learn from the prototype that we learned as we went introduced new languages, for instance, or...
1: Yeah. So, th- th- one of the learnings from the prototype itself was that OpenAPI is really prescriptive. There is not a lot of conventions to know and kind of, you know, um, ask the oracles, if should I have an endpoint here or not? Should I have this convention here or not? And so on and so forth. Where To compare it with OData, for example, OData relies a lot on uh, conventions. If you have an entity set, it means you have endpoints here, here, and here. It also means that you can filter. It also means that you can do this, this, and that. So you have to know all those conventions. uh, OpenAPI does not work like that. OpenAPI really describes you. Here is a path where you can get stuff. Here is the parameters it takes. Here is what it returns. And there is not a lot to know. Like you can just read the document to understand what the API does, which makes our generation story much simpler. Instead of trying to understand the conventions, we just follow what is being prescribed. And it first leads to less code, but also to faster implementation time for us. And then to answer the second part of your question, after the proof of concept, we started moving up front at the same time, uh, .NET of course, but TypeScript and Java, because we did not want to make any assumptions in the generator that uh, the language would support this or that, uh, the target language would support this or that specific feature, and then be kind of caught uh, in a corner and say, hey, we assume that feature would be here in the language, but we actually don't have it, and now we're stuck. And the reason why I'm saying that is because CuDA works in three main phases where it will read, the first one, it will read the OpenAPI document and generate what we call a code DOM, kind of like the same way your browser, when it loads a web page, reads the HTML and creates a DOM in memory, which is the representation of what maybe need to be displayed on the page. But it's only memory at this point. And then it feeds that DOM into a refiner for the language. So that DOM at this point is not tied to any specific language. It's all language agnostic, right? And it will describe things like we need a method, we need a class, we need a namespace or a package, right? The same kind of a, or a module, that kind of concept. And so then it takes that language agnostic DOM and it feeds it into a refiner. That refiner is language specific and it's kind of flavoring that DOM into something that is more Java E or more C-sharp E or more TypeScript E, right? And so it's easier to write down um, uh, um, after that. And then the third phase is actually where we start writing the code where we read that code DOM that has been flavored uh, to the specific language we're targeting. And we actually end up writing the code. And we have code writers for the different kind of DOM elements we have. We have a code writer for method. We have a code writer for properties. We have a code writer for classes, and so on and so forth. So by doing that, we only need to define how do I write a method in Java? Once in the code writer for Java, and this is uh, this is how that works. And and after the prototype during the MVP phase, if we call it this way, we realized that m- working with multiple languages up front allowed us to step back and keep our decisions in, in check to make sure that the decisions we were making were not tied to C# specifically or, or or
0: anything specifically. Yeah. Yeah, it's really smart. And so. The grunt of the work is in the generator building that DOM, I guess, in the first step, right? Yep. And then I'm assuming the code for the language refiners is actually pretty clean. It it probably just looks like normal Java code or normal Go code or...
1: Well, at the end of the day, we're still generating code, right? So there is, uh, compared to, let's say you're building an application that does so and so in the financial system, right? The, the business logic will be fairly mm-hmm. uh, transparent. If you read the code, it will map to whatever your financial application is doing. Because we're generating code, um, all our code has actually um, a level of abstraction on top of that, right? We're generating code that will eventually do something. So this is why the code can be a little bit
0: complex. Um, so. Do you actually like run Coyota, the engine, to see what the output of that code is like, and then go back to the refiner code? Is that the right term to then tweak it and then look and then compare it to see what the output looks, looks like for TypeScript or something? So we do a bit of
1: both. So before we we have any generation capability for a language, we usually prototype what do we want a request builder to be looking like, and what do we want the model to look like, and so on and so forth, so we know what target we want to achieve. And then, uh, of course, we start putting together the refiner for the language and the different uh, DOM element writers. And uh, we have two ways of testing that. The first one, of course, is unit test, because at the end of the day, we're generating text based on some data and based on some conditions. So it's really easy to unit test, which was not the case of our previous generator, for example, Um, and we can use the unit test to make sure, oh, here, yes, I need to add a, a private keyword to make the method private, for example, based on that condition, or I need to have Uh, question mark to say that it's a notable uh, type for in .NET, for example, we can test all those aspects. But that's on more unit test um, approach of things. And of course, we do have sample data uh, that we we generate to look at what's the outcome of a generation and and what does it look like before we actually start putting SDKs together. This is why that uh, if you go on the Kyoda repo, you will see there is a Kyoda samples Submodule, module which is actually another repo and this is where we have this um, mail description of uh, graph apis where it's only the stuff about uh, email and messages. It doesn't contain the full description of graph, it's just a subset. And and we have samples for that specific OpenAPI description for .NET, for Java, for TypeScript, for Go, PHP uh, since yesterday as well. Um, so not only we can test and see the difference if when we're changing the code, but also people can go there and see what it looks like until we have the SDKs ready to go and um, available for everyone.
0: So so if I step back, Codera is not necessarily built just for graph open API. If someone had an open API definition that is not Microsoft Graph, they could use all the work we've done and generate an SDK for any of those languages? Or are there certain nuances to it that would mean that you probably have to tweak it for your product or service?
1: No, so the one of the mottos we have for Kyoda is that it's not just for Microsoft Graph, and that's for multiple reasons. So the first very obvious reason is to keep us in check meaning that we're not building something that is so specific that only us care about it. And so we can make decisions that are a bit more open, a bit more suitable for everyone else, and so on and so forth. So this is why uh, in our design decisions, we confine all the graph-specific stuff into the core libraries. You know how when you use an SDK, you have a library for V1, a library for beta, and they all rely on a core library for the language. Well, all the, the Microsoft Graph specific things like um, some OData specificities like batching, like paging, all those things they live in here and not in Kyoto because they're very specific to Microsoft Graph. But all the rest we make g- as generic as possible, as Open API compliant and standard compliant as possible. So if anybody has any other kind of API that has an open API description for it, whether it's a third party or whether it's using API management or whether it's an in-house line of business API. Well, they can use Kyoda to generate the same kind of SDK that we will provide uh, using Kyoda for Microsoft Graph.
0: That's actually really clever. So it's amazing how much, how far it's come from that prototype Daryl showed me. Like, I, honestly, I couldn't believe it when he showed me. It was like, really, this, is, this seems almost too simple. And I'm sure I'm oversimplifying by saying that, but it's very cool that we now have this ability for anyone with an open API to to generate these things. And I've been amazed how quickly you've churned out languages. So like, did you have experience in Go to build the Go one? No. So uh, how is that a thing? Like, how do you know that what it's generating is right based on that? What's been some of your approaches there? Uh,
1: so a couple of things. So the, the story of Go is I. Uh, did part of a generation during my first FHL back in July, I believe, and I did the second part of a generation in the core libraries for that, plus you know, setting up, putting the SDKs out there, doing my other FHL week, uh, I don't know if it was it in October, I believe, or in September, and I had no Go experience prior to that. The thing with Go, uh, it was a bit easy in the sense that Go is a very simple language, and they keep it simple for people so it's um, easy to learn but also they give you a simple tool so you don't shoot yourself in the foot right so so you don't go down a path where you use this very complex construct that you don't really understand and and then you end up doing something wrong no go has very simple constructs and once you master those constructs uh, well you're good to go if you allow the pen Um, but um, but yeah this is why it was really easy to learn and to learn how to do the right thing the other thing is go has very good um, documentation about Things like naming conventions, design patterns, how to structure your modules, and other things like that, where um, they tell you exactly this is how we intend for you to use the language. Don't use it another way. And then also by having discussions with uh, Go community members, more senior Go developers, uh, it was easy to show them, hey, here's what our SDK look like. What do you think? Is is it terrible or
0: is it uh, good for what we're trying to achieve? And and so far yeah. we've had we've had good feedback from the community. Yeah. That's really impressive. And then the other thing I want to pick up on you was you said you were generating just the mail and the messages. And I know Daryl for the longest time, and you picked up on this at the beginning of the show of like some mm-hmm. developers were concerned about the size of the SDK. Oh yeah. Like graph is massive. Like the API reviews mm-hmm. that come through now, the training my team has to do, the training I support team have to do just on the sheer, sheer surface layer of the graph. Like there's some big products that are coming on board the graph soon that will hundreds of new API endpoints, you're not gonna use the whole surface layer. Like we know that, you know, there's some common workloads that everyone uses. So having the giant SDK is not a great idea. So with Kyota, are you able to generate like partials then like we do with PowerShell, the modules, which isn't on Kyota right now? Yes and yes. So
1: Kyoto relies on two other things that are upstream, right? If you think about how we ship new APIs to Microsoft Graph, there's a whole API review process and people document their API and describe it using something called CSDL that comes from the OData world, right? And from that CSDL, we have the open API to uh, OData conversion library that takes a CSDL and converts it to an open API document. But still, at this point, we still have a full open API description of all the APIs that are on Microsoft Graph. So we we have this other tool called HIDI, um, which also lives on the uh, DevX API, which is the API behind um, Graph Explorer, that allows us to slice and dice an open API description so the idea is that you'll come to us and say either you don't care about the size and you take our v1 or beta uh, service libraries and you're happy with those and you just just do that and that's always going to be here and that's always going to going to be working right Um, but if you do care about the size because you're doing front-end development or mobile development or iot and you do care about the size of your binaries and other things like that and you don't want all the apis because you only care about a subset of apis on microsoft graph in a, a future not so distant, you will have a way to come through a UI to say I care about things about email or I care about things about files like OneDrive SharePoint or I care about Intune, for example. And I don't care about all the LVR API. So just give me an open API description for those APIs, and then you'll be able to use that open API description, feed it to Kyoto, and Kyoto will generate for you an SDK that is just um, about those APIs and and nothing else. So it will reduce the size of the SDK uh, tremendously uh, to only what
0: you care about effectively. That's really nice. And, and I guess that's definitely a more advanced path, but if someone is really concerned about the size, mm-hmm. that is a really neat way of doing it.
1: Yeah, and also it um, also depends on the ecosystem, right? If you're building a back-end server application, if your application is a couple more megabytes because of the libraries you're, you're using, you don't care really so much, right? But if you're building like a front-end application that lives in the browser that needs to um, load really fast, Mm. You do care about those things, but you still want the benefits of a fluent API, compile time checks, uh, error handling, and all those other things, right? So we're kind of giving you the, well, we will be giving you the best of both worlds where you pick what whatever you end up um, needing, basically.
0: And so for those that are already using our c SDKs, for instance, that we've had out now for mm-hmm. years and years and years that were generated on the previous engines, typewriter. Typewriter. It, There was a name before typewriter as well that maybe you're not familiar with. Uh, Viper. Viper. I was like, I know it's like a dinosaur name or something. It was I know it's Viper. <laughs> if they're using those f- current, what's our plan there? Have we announced any kind of direction yet on, you know, do we like at some point do the switcheroo? Has the switcheroo already happened or not yet. Because I'm assuming there's changing changes in the SDK shape a little bit more likely. A little
1: bit, yes. Um, So if we talk about .NET specifically, Andrew, the main developer for the .NET SDK, has made tremendous progress on aligning the SDK, the core of the SDK I was talking about earlier. Onto uh, Kyoda to make sure it supports Kyoda and, and 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 the for example the paging the batching and all of those other things still work with a Kyoda generated SDK, and we are actually already going through comparison uh, motions where we say, here is if I want to do this here is what it looks like with the .NET SDK currently here is what it looks like with the future .NET SDK based off Kyoda. and for .NET specifically the delta is not that big. Uh, we anticipate like the Flint API will look fairly familiar and fairly similar. And to some, for some cases, it will be identical for the Fluent API. The type names of the models will be also, well, exactly the same, actually. And uh, we anticipate that in some cases, if you're doing a very simple usage of the SDK today, it will be a drop-in replace uh, to some extent. Uh, if you're doing things a bit more advanced, like using paging, batching, tweaking the configuration of a client, um, storing the request to do parallel processing, and so on and so forth, in that case, we anticipate that yes, there will be a number of breaking changes, and you will need to change a few things to jump on the new SDK. And to answer your The other part of your question of where we're at, well, uh, Andrew is aligning the core to work with QDL, so we can start putting out their previews for the core, not only, but also for the service libraries for V1 and for beta, that will be in preview. It will be in preview for a number of months, as usual, to collect the feedback, to make sure there are no bugs, or as fewer bugs as possible. And eventually we'll say, well, this becomes the main branch, and this becomes the main release of the .NET SDK. That's
0: really neat. So one of the big bits of feedback about our JavaScript SDK is that it isn't a fluent styled SDK. And and obviously the SharePoint community have had fluent style SDKs in their own native SharePoint REST APIs and CSOM APIs for a while. I see you've got TypeScript. Is this something that we've made a language decision that TypeScript is the way that Graph is going to do? for JavaScript developers, or will there be a TypeScript SDK and a a native JavaScript SDK we pump out? So when we go into that conversation, we have
1: to keep in mind that TypeScript at the end of the day is only a superset of JavaScript. So whatever we end up building with uh, TypeScript uh, will work for JavaScript developers. The fact that we're shipping a TypeScript SDK doesn't mean, hey, if you're doing native JavaScript, well, we don't care about you. No, not at all. It just means that you will get the best of breed experience with TypeScript. And if you happen not to be using TypeScript for personal choices or because of uh, the environment you're working on, it's okay too. You can use plain JavaScript and our SDK will work uh, uh, just fine. If you think about the landscape for a second, right? Like if you think about JavaScript development, I don't know, like eight years ago, the jQuery era, right? Uh, everybody was working working with plain JavaScript in the page, and and that was it, right? Now, if you compare that situation to now, most of the developers out there are either working with very modern JavaScript where they only write JavaScript, but they get compile time support, they get uh, a lot of tooling to make sure their code is uh, bundled and processed together and and works very well, or they're working straight away in in, in TypeScript. I'm thinking about SharePoint Framework developers, I'm thinking about team developers, and, and so on and so forth, right? So it makes sense for us to put out there an SDK that is TypeScript first, and that also transpiles to modern javascript so if you're using only javascript well you still get the benefits of modern javascript um
0: aspects and assets basically yeah, that's really neat well look i appreciate your time today and uh, honestly i'm i'm just incredibly amazed how much work you've got done on top of the quite frankly the genius work that daryl started as a prototype that you've taken on board and and move forward with this so um thank you on behalf of the graph community for getting these sdk's features in a Quite frankly, a much greater state of us being able to respond to new languages and stuff. But also, just think for the open API community, this is incredible. Like, yet another advantage of using the open API standard. Which I know for those listening that may be not aware, Daryl Miller is on our team. He's an API architect on Graph, but he's also on the open API board too. And he happens to be a very close friend. And so some of the jabs at the beginning are more because we're mates than anything. Before you start thinking, oh my God, Jeremy's jealous of this. It's like, no, no, I'm just like. It is how we are between the three of us. No, I'm just incredibly proud of you guys. It's so cool we get this stuff done. And uh, congrats. I get, that was a good change, jumping out of the PM world into a dev world and be, being part of this, you know, giant uh, new SDK motion. So congrats.
1: Thank you very much. And, and thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to have uh, this
0: conversation today. And uh, so how can people follow you? What's your your Twitters and everything else? So you can find me, of course, on GitHub, but you can find me
1: on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Bayret, B-A-Y-W-E-T. I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to follow me on LinkedIn. And besides that, I'm often present in the PNP community, those podcasts, and a few other places. So you should uh, see my face here and there uh,
0: from times to times. And then for Kyoto the best place to go looks like microsoft.github.io. Slash Kyota. S- slash Kyota, which is K-I-O-T-A. And the name for Kyota is Swahili for Nest.
1: Yes. Or Origin, depending.
0: Yeah, Or Origin. Yeah. Okay. And the Swahili thing is because we work with so many of our, your team is actually in Nairobi in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Which exactly. is really, really cool too. Transitioning to CPX role, I do actually really miss working in the Developer Experience team because um, they're a fun bunch. So it was even you mentioning Andrew, um, if he listens. Hi Andrew, um, <laughs> it's great working with devs directly, which I don't get to do so much now because we're working more with our with customers externally than mm-hmm. we are internally on shipping things. Which I guess is you know another transition thing that it's good to share too. Thanks again. We'll get you on, and you'll be talking about all this stuff—shipping and being out of preview, and 50 languages supported—and we'll go crazy.
1: If I can make a little bit of promo um, for the Go SDK, if you if you don't write Go, that's fine, but you probably have Go friends. Tell them to go try our Go SDK.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: And uh, provide us some feedback. It's it's a very good opportunity for you to tell us. Whether you like or not the direction we're taking and the kind of SDKs we're putting out there. So it's uh, github.com slash Microsoft Graph, I'll attach slash MS
0: dash SDK dash Go. We'll put that
1: in the notes, I guess. But yeah, yep.
0: yeah that'll all be in the show notes for the podcast. But yeah, that's a, actually a really good point. Excellent. Well, look, uh, happy holidays, mate, and uh, see you soon. See you soon. Bye for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes.